He says the reason we're tearing each other apart is because we've forgotten the foundations that brought us together. And those foundations, I contend in the right side of history, lie one, in Judeo-Christian ethics, and two, in Greek teleology. We live in the most prosperous time in human history, a time when a baby born can expect to live past the year 80, a time when virtually no one is living in starvation conditions in the West, when virtually everybody can expect to have a long, healthy life, uh, when racial tolerance is at an all-time high, when freedom is at an all-time high. The reason why he can say this, and nobody says anything against him, is that the whole narrative has been cleansed. The whole narrative of our civilization has been cleansed of any Muslim identity. It looks like a controlled demolition and you have nothing to say? You I, have nothing to say about this? I have I seen mean, the video. I can tell you that it is something we are raising with the governor of Israel as we do often do. Raising as what? When, when like, we see to, to ask questions and, and, and find out what the underlying situation is. It's not of troubling to you? Uh, we are always troubled by the... by. Um, uh, I was always raised with how wrong the ethnic cleansing was of the Jews in World War II. This was our moral compass that was given to us as children. But as I realized that Islam is cleansed out of the narrative, how easy is it to cleanse also the people out of the country? And I think that what's happening in Gaza is also enabled by this narrative that the Muslims didn't contribute to anything. We're now in the fourth month of what many are calling a genocide by Israel of the Palestinian people. We have some shocking new footage of the destruction in Gaza, which is emblematic of a wider problem in Western civilization itself. Why don't you show us this new footage? So this is um, from Nicola Perugini. He's showing the Israeli military just blew up the University of Palestine in Gaza City with 315 mines. All the universities in Gaza have been damaged or destroyed. We need a full academic boycott. And I just want to play this for us here just to see the sheer scale of the destruction. Yeah. And the fact that they're actually videoing this as if it's some kind of... Photo op. Photo op. I mean, just look at this. This is a full-scale university. And look at what they do to it. They absolutely pulverize it. There's nothing left of it. And this is a really good thread because this is Isra University. And it wasn't just the uh, university that they did this to. The attack wasn't only on the campus, but it was also against the National Museum established by the university, containing more than 3,000 rare artifacts, which the Israeli occupation stole and then bombed the museum to cover up for the crime. Obviously, that's unverified, but it's something that's been put out there. And it's actually, a, as, as Nicola says, it's, it's actually a systematic practice of destination destruction of the Palestinian higher education system. So this was this was a medical school. So this is mm. the Faculty of Medicine at the Islamic University at the beginning of December. And then this is an actual fact, the response by the United States. And this is kind of unbelievable, actually, if, you, if we can watch part of it through. Yeah, sure. Let's put this up. Based on uh, Saeed's question about the demolition of the, the university, I don't know if you've seen the video pretty widely available but it certainly looks i mean it looks like a controlled demolition it looks like what we do here in this country when we're taking down an old hotel or a stadium and you have nothing to say you I, have nothing to say about this i, I mean it, to do that kind of an explosion you need to be in there you have to put the explosives down and it takes a lot of planning and preparation to do and if there was a threat from this particular facility they wouldn't have been able to do it. 
So I have seen the video. Uh, I can tell you that it is something we uh, are raising with the governor of Israel, as we do often do uh, when we well, see raising as when, what? When, like, when we see to to ask questions and 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 find out what the underlying situation is, as we often do when we see reports of this nature. Um, but I'm not able to characterize the actual facts on the ground before hearing that that response. But, yeah, but you saw the video. I did see the video. I don't. I don't I mean, know. I don't like know. I don't know what was. I don't know what was under that building. I don't know what was under that building. I don't know what was uh, inside. Well, yeah, inside. But it doesn't that matter building. what was under the building because they obviously got in there to put the explosives down to, to, to <laughs> so, do it in I, the way that they did. Uh, again, I'm. I, I'm glad you have factual certainty about it. I just, I just don't. I don't. All I, I have just is what I, I saw I, in the video. I just right? don't. And I think you guys but saw I can it too. Say, uh, we did see it and I can say that we have raised it with and the government of Israel. And it's not troubling to you? Uh, we are always troubled by the, by um, uh, any degradation of civilian infrastructure in Gaza, but without knowing the actual underlying circumstances, I'm a little hesitant, I think for reasons that should be understandable to pass definitive judgment on it from this podium. Right, so he's he, at least he's troubled. He's troubled. Yeah, and, he's troubled. And the, the funny thing that I always find, uh, so this, this is another Euromed HR report that Israel has killed more than 94 professors and lecturers from various disciplines. These are known and confirmed victims, although the actual number mm. may be higher due to communication and documentary challenges. There's a really good point that's made in a reply on the thread, which is that when you destroy um, a university or you kill so many professors, it means you're, you're never going to be able to let that society regain its level of education mm. Um, to a similar level. And I find it extraordinary that Matthew Miller, on this particular thing, he's a State, Sp State Department um, spokesman. Hmm. He's like, yeah, we're going we're gonna to ask the people who are committing a genocide. Are you committing a genocide? I need your, I need hmm. your response. Um, you know, I've got this documentary evidence that you're actually blowing up civilian infrastructure, but did you have a really good reason to blow up civilian infrastructure? And like the journalist said, it's about, you know, he's put, put these, they put these mines down and it's a clear photo op. So it's, uh, it's actually, to me, it seems like they're trying to break the spirit of the Palestinians. They're trying to, you know, ethnically cleanse them, destroy their entire culture, society, civilization, and, and destroy capacity. their and destroy their hope and destroy the capacity for future growth, for future mm. educational attainment. Mm. And then, when they don't have any educational attainment, they say, "Oh, look, you see these barbarians? They're completely uneducated." When the reality is, they have a very high standard. You go to you go to Palestine. Every housewife is an MSc or a PhD. I'm right. not even joking. Right. And and we have with us Dr. Abdul Haq Compier. Um, welcome to the show. Again, for the second time. Yeah. Uh, if viewers haven't seen his uh, his first uh, appearance, it's an excellent story on uh, actually how you converted to Islam and also the role of Islam in your uh, in Dutch history. Uh, and you know, for us, you're a true Renaissance man. Yeah. You may say so. You know, you're um, you're actually quite a scholar in a second language in English, and you've been published by Cambridge University Press on many of these scientific and, and historical issues. You're a psychiatrist. You're a graphic designer. Yeah. You're a, you're a historian. You know. And you've got grey hair. So <laughs> it's all working out. So what's your take on this, on, on what we've just been seeing? Okay, and salam alaikum, and thank you for having me again. And, um, and for the nice introduction. Yeah, so it is uh, shocking footage, as you say, mm. and uh, it is um, showing what the, uh, what the West is uh, permitting itself to do in the name of self-defense. Mm. Uh, to destroy a whole culture, to destroy a whole uh, civilization, as is the um, definition of ethnic cleansing. It's not only to uh, to take away the people, but also to, as you say, to take away all their infrastructure uh, and even their culture and their hope. Mm. I think it's also to take away their capacity for future growth and for development. 
they want to degrade the people. Mm. And then once they're degraded, they want to blame them. Mm. Right. And this is, I think, you know, actually the underlying motive Mm. behind all of this. Mm. Uh, It's to portray people as barbarians, substantiate the allegation they are. Mm. Right. And then say, oh, look, well, this is why we have to remove them from our land. And in that sense, it's actually a spectacular failure because I think the whole world has seen the steadfastness of the Palestinians. And it's actually remarkable, their um, equanimity in the face of uh, true horror. Yeah. Many of them have been a model of steadfastness um, with the number of deaths that have gone around them. I think a lot of Western people are probably seeing videos of, uh, you know, fathers telling their children to be steadfast. These are difficulties from God. Your your brother is with with Allah. Yeah, I saw that. And these are things which only actually a religious background can actually give you. And I don't think there's any people on earth who believe like the Muslims believe in God in the afterlife. I don't know what you think. Yeah, so it's um, it's good to compliment them, and uh, but at the same time, you know, as uh, as a psychiatrist, and you're studying the same field as well, mm. we know that uh, despite this steadfastness and their uh, enormous faith in God, mm. it will be it will be a shock that's going to last for generations. Mm. Yeah, and uh, well, may Allah help them and and um, help them to recover. Mm. But uh, to to see this destruction as a child, it is uh, it is very difficult to recover. It's deeply scarring. Now you know why we've why why have we shown this? We've shown this not just to document some of the barbarity that's going on, yeah. but actually because this particular image of the destruction of the university in this kind of photo op style yeah. is, as I said, emblematic. As, as if they're proud. Oh, absolutely. They're it's proud. as if they're it's proud of destroying somebody's university. Yeah. And, and the Western handlers, the Western backers, you know, in, uh, you know, in, in America and the other Western countries, yeah. you know, haven't stepped back. They haven't even called for ceasefires, right? No. So they are supporting this. But this image to, to us was so profound because it, it seemed to signify and symbolize actually the West's approach to Islam, even intellectually, mm. right? Basically, bomb it and don't leave a trace of it. Yeah. Okay. We've been seeing how they've been doing this in various Muslim countries physically, but actually, the reason why we've we've really brought you in is to talk about how they've been doing this for centuries intellectually. Yeah. Now you have this wonderful article, the Islamic origins of Renaissance humanism, which hopefully by the time that we publish this is going to be live on our website, rationalreligion.co.uk. And it's an extremely scholarly article. We're not going to be able to go through everything. We, you know, we really do ask the viewers to go and, uh, and, and read it. And we can put a link in the description. Box. Yeah. Link will be in the description below. This article argues for so many things that I think are deeply relevant for today, but which people have forgotten. Now, before we get there, because I want to set up a counterpoint to you, we're going to show you another great scholar of the modern day, uh, Benjamin Shapiro. Why don't you introduce the clip that we're about to see? So, so the clip we're about to see is kind of, you know, we, we want to go to the clip first because your article is a wonderful, like, expose of what he's about to say. And it's a great example of the mistake that Westerners make in particular mm. with respect to Muslims, Arabs, and Islam. So let's just play it. You say this book is really about two things. It's about uh, two mysteries. The first is why are things so good? And the second, why are we blowing it? Explain what you mean. So we live in the most prosperous 
time in human history, a time when a baby born can expect to live past the year 80, uh, a time when virtually no one is living in starvation conditions in the West, when virtually everybody can expect to have a long, healthy life, uh, when racial tolerance is at an all-time high, when freedom is at an all-time high. So how did things get so good? How did we end up here? Because two centuries ago, everybody was dying in nasty, brutish, and short fashion. So what exactly changed is, is question number one. And number two is, why are we so angry at each other amidst the most glorious conditions ever lived in by any human beings at any time? And the answer is, we have to investigate the roots of our civilization. He says the reason we're tearing each other apart is because we've forgotten the foundations that brought us together. And those foundations, I contend in the right side of history, lie one, in Judeo-Christian ethics, and two, lie in Greek teleology, the idea that we can apply reason to the universe and come up with good moral answers and scientific answers to the conditions that surround us. So that combination, the push and pull between human reason and divine revelation, that, that push and pull created the West. We have tried forcibly, in many cases, to undermine both of those bases for Western civilization, then we're surprised when we return to the chaos that preceded them. Well, I mean, th there are two perceptions of moral purpose that tend to merge in the West. Perception number one is that it is your job to serve God, that God put you on the planet, not to serve your own ends, but to serve his ends. And this is in the Judeo-Christian tradition, the idea of revelation, that God gave you a moral purpose and that you have to live out that morality if you want to fulfill the purpose for which you were put on, on planet Earth. I think the key point he's making is that, you know, Judeo-Christian heritage um, brought with it a sense of purpose that was given by God and from the religious aspect. Uh, and that reason and the analysis of our place in the universe came from the Greeks. And he, again, he kind of, this is what you talk about in your article at length, is how they kind of skip out about six, seven, eight hundred years of history. And they jump from the Renaissance and they jump all the way back over these pesky Arabs in the middle uh, and the Muslims, and they fall upon the Greeks 2000 years earlier. So can you introduce your article, what your thoughts are on what we've just said, and let's go from there. Yeah, so it's, uh, it's definitely uh, emblematic, as you say, of, of what we're talking about today. Uh, what Ben Shapiro is saying, that he is uh, painting a picture of uh, our uh, Western civilization as being uh, based on Judeo-Christian values and then Greek rationality. Hmm. Um and completely leaves out Islam, mm. whereas Islam has made an enormous contribution exactly uh, in these points as well of uh, important values for our society and as well as in uh, in rationality and in philosophy. Mm. Um, but he, uh, but the reason why he can say this. At this moment, and and nobody says anything against him, mm. uh, is that the whole narrative has been cleansed. Mm. So the whole narrative of our civilization has been cleansed of uh, anything of Muslim identity, mm. and um, so there we can go to uh, this narrative that everybody knows that what is our civilization, right? So he'll probably talk about this in his book as well that uh, our civilization is uh, suddenly emerged uh, in uh, around 500 years ago mm. uh, during the Renaissance when the Christians or the Europeans, they found uh, Greek manuscripts and suddenly they were enlightened and started uh, recreating this uh, classical culture. Mm. And this is uh, uh, such a fairy tale really to, really? Uh, to say although we are all um, being taught this in school, mm. but this whole narrative of um, that, uh, that enables this, this idea of everything uh, going back to the Greeks 
yeah and uh and to the to the romans yeah is um was created by uh quite consciously taking out the uh, muslim identity from the civilization that had been created from the time of the prophet muhammad peace be upon him mm. to right around the 13th 14th century mm. uh, the muslim civilization made an enormous development and uh, created all the values uh, established all the values that the west uh, was built upon later on yeah um as part of the renaissance and yeah. as part of renaissance humanism so how would you so we talk about renaissance humanism and they're two they're two big words in and of themselves mm-hmm. and you've put them together in your article can you just summarize for us what humanism means today and what it used to mean in the past and what relevance it has to the renaissance yeah so uh, what humanism is uh, thought of as today is that it is a philosophy or a, a life view that um, uh, that distances itself from uh, religion yeah so many people who say that they're humanist would say this uh, while saying that they are not religious yeah. right right but this was not actually what humanism was uh, humanism was actually the a cultural movement that uh, that created the the um, civilization of uh, that led towards the Renaissance. Mm-hmm. Ah. So, so it was the, it was the pre- precedent in a way, or it was the culture in which the, which enabled scientific pursuit to occur. Exactly in so, the West. So actually, and and it developed within the Muslim world. I see. Um, and there it was called adab. Adab. Uh, and okay. adab consisted of ideals and disciplines uh, that would uh, encourage education, learning, uh, investigation, discovery, uh, erudition. You know. So, so basically, the culture of scholarship, in a way, is adab. Yeah. Okay. So, so what what we, what I really hope people would understand is as for, for this movement is that it is um, the spirit of learning, the spirit of um, that has the ideal of perfecting yourself as a human being by learning mm. uh, and right by uh, uh, um, by um, sorry, encouraging st- a scholarship. Mm. Yeah, but um, what happened was that this this movement came into being uh, in the Muslim world, mm. in the Arab world specifically, I suppose. Yeah, in the in the Arab, Arab world. and the Persian world. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it was this was adopted uh, by Europeans uh, through, for example, the uh, conquest of Sicily. So Sicily had been ruled by Muslims uh, for like two hundred years, mm. uh, between eight hundred and one thousand approximately. Then uh, around one thousand, the Normans conquered Sicily and they adopted the culture that was there. Frederick II. So this was, for example, Frederick II, which was known among Christians as the wonder of the world. Okay. (laughs) Probably he was probably intelligent person, but it was also because he adopted all these things that were there from Muslim civilization. And you highlight how his secretary was kind of the first European humanist. Uh, Can you tell us a little bit about him? Yeah. So, um, so these this this uh, culture of learning and education, mm. uh, this was very much a culture in the Arab world that would um, that would be around the the courts, and who would be secretaries to the rulers, mm. 
And um, so the Muslim rulers would have these sectaries that would know uh, language very well and that would be very educated and would be able to advise him and to, um, to express things in words well. So where did the where did the Arabs get this from? I mean, because you talk about adab as a kind of you're emphasizing language here and the role of language. Uh, did the, did the Arabs just get this from the Greeks? Did they just get adab? And can somebody say that look, you know, this is all just Arabs receiving from the Greeks and giving it passing on to the Europeans? No. So it's good to to have this uh, this story right. Um, actually, this movement came from Muslim values. So Muslims that are uh, or values that are uh, innate in the uh, religion of Islam. Okay. So, for example, one of the values that is innate in the religion of Islam is the sanctity of the Arabic language and to safeguard this uh, this, pu- this uh, pure language mm. uh, from being uh, misrepresented, from being misunderstood. Mm-hmm. So, so this was a very important motivation for the Muslims uh, quite early on already, uh, which is, by the way, a very amazing um, um, feature for the truth of Islam and for the authenticity of the Quran, that they were so uh, specific about language and preserva- preservation. Yeah. Right? But even during the time of the Caliph Ali, radiallahu mm. anhu, uh, a contemporary of him, he developed a, a grammar for the Arabic language, uh, which was... Uh, you know, one of the things that happened very early on, uh, scholars would travel uh, to Arab tribes uh, for years to find the original meanings of words in the Quran, for really? example. Mm. And so already quite a big um, culture of scholarship was created uh, quite early on just by this motivation of uh, of protecting the holy text and the holy language because yeah, there were non-muslims coming into the religion i guess well i guess yeah. so but i think i think it's just for the for the sake of understanding the quran and the deeper meanings i assume yeah i mean this this is you know you you said how it happened so early and you've you've got this wonderful um uh quote from uh the ninth century spanish christian alvaro and it highlights the contrast between the early Muslim development mm. and European culture at that time. Spanish Christian Alvaro says, my fellow Christians delight in the poems and romances of the Arabs. They study the works of Islamic theologians and philosophers, not in order to refute them, but to acquire a correct and elegant Arabic style. Where today can a layman be found who reads the Latin commentaries and the Holy Scriptures? Who is there that studies the gospels, the prophets and the apostles? Alas, the young Christians who are most conspicuous for their talents have no knowledge of any literature or language save the Arabic. They read and study with avidity Arabic books. They amass whole libraries of them at vast cost and everywhere they sing the praises of Arabian law. On the other hand, at the mention of Christian books, they disdainfully protest that such works are unworthy of their notice. The pity of it. Christians have forgotten their own tongue and scarce one in a thousand can be found able to compose in fair Latin a letter to a friend. But when it comes to writing Arabic, 
how many there are who can express themselves in that language with the greatest elegance and even compose verses which surpass in formal correctness those of the Arabs themselves. A very bold claim, if I may say. <laughs> I mean, it's just remarkable, the, the, the pathos there mm. of this Spanish Christian and just showing how the, the European scholarship was actually just following, yeah, just following, the following Arabs. Arabic, yeah. Arabic scholarship. So already, did, yeah, yeah. already from noticing this yeah. in the course of history, noticing how... Uh, impressed and how intimidated people in Europe were by the Arabic linguistic culture. Hmm. This is just already without taking anything of this uh, history that we're discussing into further account. Hmm. This is so important that people were reacting to this in this way. Hmm. And, um, you know, uh, even, um, uh, so we will, we will see later that um, the, the Christians would search for, a culture like this, so powerful, uh, just for the linguistic aspect mm. already, so powerful that they would search for um, a language that is as classical and as holy as uh, as Arabic. Did they right. find one? And for this, they find the classical Latin. Okay. So they weren't speaking, so, so 9th, 10th, 11th century, they weren't speaking Latin, or were they... No, so we're talking, exactly, so we're talking now like 13th century, 14th century. Okay. And people were talking the the vernacular Latin, and uh, but these, uh, but the European humanists, so the, the European scholars who took over the values of uh, the Arab humanism or the mm. Arab adept, uh, they decided that it had to be classical Latin, which was a dead language. Okay. Right, so they, but, they sorry. No. Yeah. But um, maybe we're moving a little bit quickly through history. Hmm. I want to point out. I want to go back a little bit to as you wish to to the uh, to the foundations of the uh, of the Arabic or the Muslim movement of education, which is called Arab or which is called uh, you know Islamic humanism. Hmm. Uh, so you have this language aspect, and then you have the aspect of uh, the the appreciation of knowledge and the uh, love for learning and the ideal of being educated, hmm. uh, which is uh, which is something that already came from the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam, because he said, "Keep learning, if uh, or seek knowledge. If you even if you go to China, hmm. uh, keep learning from the uh, cradle to the grave, something hmm. like that." He, yes, he, yes. He, he used to say. And for the one who seeks knowledge or sets out on a journey seeking knowledge, he is covered by Allah's mercy. Uh, so, so all these things that the Prophet Muhammad taught, they also created an, an atmosphere where learning and education was uh, was uh, encouraged, mm. and this was really not a small thing. So, so these people who were becoming scholars, they would also learn uh, to go to other cultures uh, and to other civilizations to seek knowledge. So mm. they would go to India. And the, the Persian civilization, they would uh, take mm. good things out of. Mm. Um, you know, one example is the, the numerical system that came from India mm. yeah. and the Muslims adopted it. Yeah. Um, and uh, so, so you, get a, you get a culture of, uh, of, of scholars who love education and who love to learn from different civilizations in the world. Yeah. Uh, and one important thing we have to stress is that 
uh, in Islam, uh, being educated is uh, is something that you do to fulfill your purpose towards God. Mm. Right. So, um, so it's some sometimes today we think of education just as a preparation for production. Right. Or just uh, as, as, as to, to learn a job or something. Yeah. But in Islam, this was like an ideal. It was, uh, it was something that uh, you needed to do to fulfill your purpose as a human being and to perfect yourself as a human being. Yeah. So I think these two things I really want to stress as the energy and the power between this or uh, behind this, um, this cultural movement of ADEP or humanism as we call it mm. so it is the it is a very strong linguistic part with a very powerful linguistic culture mm-hmm. and it is an ideal of perfecting yourself as a human being through education uh, he mentioned this in two parts the usul in your article you mentioned there's two aspects the usul al-arabiya and the usul al-insaniya so the usul the learning of the language and the learning of insania humanity which became humanities humanism etc sorry yeah yeah no absolutely and also you know i was actually surprised in the article about this discussion of individuality because mm. i think one of the great criticisms of the west that's too individualistic and i think that's very correct but there's also criticism of different say eastern philosophies that they're too collectivistic yeah and that can also hold them back yeah and you've highlighted that islam and this is a quote from your article islam has a special combination in its values of unity of the muslim ummah on the one hand so the the muslim community globally and on the other hand, recognition of the individual human being in his personal relationship to God, even as a reflection of him. This relationship was not, as in Catholicism, mediated by priesthood. And you went on to talk about how the focus on the individual and the perfection of the individual uh, and how the individual can have some honor in doing something first or doing something best actually was something which was an Islamic culture and was actually adopted by the West. Is that correct? You mentioned the terms Farid Dahri. For example, um, if you could just mention them as well and how yeah, they yeah. got translated into the Latin. Uh, you've said as Muslim culture grew, individualists, I'm literally taking the words out of your mouth, I apologize. Mm-hmm. <laughs> as Muslim culture grew, uh, this is page seven, as Muslim culture grew, individualistic ideals became more clearly established, such as Farid Dahri or Nasij Wahdi, I don't know if I'm pronouncing those correct, which were adopted by Latin humanists as Uomo Singulare and Uomo Unico. So the ideal of Okay, so then, then you go on and you go on to talk about this. Have I summarized that correctly about the adoption of individuality and its virtues there? Yeah, so it's, this is extremely important because <laughs> uh, when you want to have a, a civilization based on um, on uh, discovery and of innovation mm. and of, uh, you know, uh, initiative, mm. then uh, being an individual that, uh, you know, that has a focus and has um has a right to um to develop itself and to establish uh, himself yeah this is really important uh, as we see in our own civilization now yeah but uh, which was also a very uh, important feature of the muslim civilization hmm. uh, that um was the basis of the uh, european renaissance yeah and um you know these um these these ideals are are very beautiful as you say and um and as the european scholars um took over these ideals they translated it into latin yeah and one that i like is uh, al alim al amal in arabic mm-hmm. which means the 
the scholar who acts on his words. Yeah. Uh, with so integrity, having integrity. Yeah. In a way. Not being a hypocrite. In, not being a hypocrite. <laughs> it's integrity, but also I think the I, the idea of knowledge in Islam is not only to have theoretical knowledge, but Living to also it. have practical knowledge. Yeah. Mm. So maybe it's about that as well. Mm. And uh, this is translated into Latin as loquandi faciendique humanista, which is much less stylish, <laughs> you know, which would really bother the uh, the scholar, the Spanish scholar that you were quoted before. Yeah. Who was uh, upset about the, upset. the give. Yeah. But, but what was he upset about? Well, he was upset about the fact that the, the, the Europeans were not learning Arabic and they were learning... Oh, like, I see you know, yeah, they, yeah. they were looking at learning Arabic. They weren't learning Latin and the, studying the Gospels and the prophets and the apostles. Yeah. yeah. So this is okay. amazing. So basically, can, if I can just summarize what we've set up till now, if that's all right. Yeah, yeah. So from the Quran and the culture of learning that the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, brought and the extraordinary linguistic power of the Quran and the desire to formalize that, you got the first Arabic grammar grammaring, grammar system, mm -hmm. which came out of the companion of the fourth caliph of Islam. And that developed the science of uh, lexicology um, and the science of language. And out of that came a culture of scholarship, which then permeated the rest of Arabic civilization uh, mm -hmm. and developed these terms, for example, al-alim al-amil, and, uh, you know, other things to do with um, perfection of the individual to a high level. And yeah. and it's not actually, you know, it's not something which is a coincidence, like you've been pointing out, that it, it came from Islam. I mean, like you said, the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, exhorted people to seek knowledge. You know, it's Arabic is inherent in, in the study of the Quran, but also the Quran itself and its teachings multiple times tells people to reflect on nature, to understand things, to even observe nature as a command uh, in the Holy Quran. So the Quran itself actually is what is exhorting people to develop knowledge and to live by that knowledge and to develop scholarship. And what you're saying is that this was then, you know, the West were exposed to this and it became part of them. Well, it sounds like they became envious of it and then they resurrected yeah. a dead language to try and battle Arabic. Mm. Is that right? Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah. So, so what we're seeing now is like between uh, like ninth century and uh, 13th century uh, in the Muslim world is a huge civilization developed with a, with uh, enormous scholarship where we have thousands of scholars traveling from one uh, side of the muslim world to the other side mm. for for decades and to to keep learning and learning and to then transmit um this knowledge again to other people mm. and uh, they had this uh, they had a linguistic style and they had um you know um they 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 had the scientific discovery and all that so this was extremely impressive um and uh, the europeans were impressed as you uh, showed by this uh, quote mm. of the spanish uh, uh, scholar alvaro uh, from the ninth century already so this was quite early mm. so so yeah you that's see really some, early yeah so you you see some envy and some sense of inferiority mm. uh among the Christians, because in Europe there was, these were the dark ages, mm. yeah, right? So they were uh, not able to read and write, mm. these peop the people in Europe. And uh, and they, they didn't have all this, this civilization as the Muslim world had. Mm. So definitely they were impressed and envious and, um, and they wanted to have the same thing. Uh, and they did adopt a lot of, 
uh, Arabic works uh, in in big translation projects, like in Spain. Yeah, they translated so many books, and so uh, the the Muslim authors were uh, extremely important, like between the the 11th century and the 14th century. Mm. Uh, the Europeans did appreciate the Arab authors as well, mm-hmm. but when uh, the but when the um, the this culture of of scholarship became a bit stronger in Europe, they they started to desire to distance itself from the Muslim example. Wow! Somehow, so can you tell us more about that? How did that happen? Yeah. So so this was uh, as we said that it it had to do with with um, with envy, but also of course with the theological impossibility that you would be um appreciating the the culture of which was founded by what you believe is a is a false prophet oh i see right and which is um like civilizational embarrassment (laughs) something like that (laughs) and uh, so so we have a few quotes by other scholars so so not to quote myself like um like we have uh, an important scholar of uh of, of Orientalism, William Montgomery Watt, yeah. who says uh, that Europeans were attracted to Aristotle not simply by the inherent qualities of his philosophy, but also by the fact that he belonged in a sense to their own European tradition. That is to say, the assignment of Aristotle the assignment to Aristotle of a central position in philosophy and science is partly understood as one aspect of the European assertion of distinction from Islam. Hmm. So you're de- they're defining themselves by what they're not, and they're yeah. developing a. This is what I found interesting in your article. You talked about them generating, as they develop their own scholarship and their desire to break away from the Islamic model that they had copied. Effectively, they then desire desire to create a a distance, and to do that, they created a kind of European identity as distinct from the Arab identity. So they couldn't they couldn't do it easily on religion because I guess Islam the Islamic civilization had Christians, it had Jews, it had Muslims, mm-hmm. right? The Arab civilization, the Arab Muslim civilization, but they decided to then do it on the basis of race. So right. I, I think that's something that came through quite interestingly. And you talked about Dante, for example. I found that really interesting. Can you tell us a little bit about Dante's Inferno and, and how it kind of copied Islam but rejected it simultaneously? Yeah, exactly. Mm. So Dante lives in Sicily, in which the uh, Normans had just taken over the, the rule. Right. And he was a literary genius, um, and but he also was influenced by the, the Muslim examples that he had around him. And he... Uh, in his most famous book, the uh, Inferno, uh, or no, the Divina Com- uh, Commedia, it's mm. called. Uh, yeah. There he makes a journey through heaven and hell. Mm-hmm. But these were actually proven to be uh, inspired by Sufi accounts of the ascension to heaven of the Holy Prophet, وسلم, where he was also shown heaven and hell. Mm-hmm. Right. And so Dante used these stories of the Muslim mystics as an example uh, for his book as a template yeah yeah and but at the same time uh he put the holy prophet Muhammad in in the deepest corner of hell mm. Mm. So, so he's so he's inspired by somebody uh, uh, but then he goes and says oh also he's false it's almost like it's almost like removing the traces of the original idea because 
you don't want people to realize you've copied something. But even then, if I recall correctly, correct me if I'm wrong, didn't he also put Ibn Rushd, uh, Averroes, Averroes, in uh, in heaven, who is a Muslim scholar? Um, because they, I think, you know, because he was so influential in, in the West and in Europe okay. that they, they found it very difficult to, <laughs> to break away from him because they learned a lot from our, about Aristotle from, from him, the Rush. I see. Yeah. So it was always a, a, a give and take. <laughs> I, I find that really interesting. And you also talked also about the medical, how medicine was at the forefront of this battle between establishing a European identity distinct from Islam. And there was this amazing quote that you had, which was so powerful, mm. um, which I'd be really grateful if you could go through. Yeah. So this idea that that everything in Western civilization comes from uh, classical Rome and Greece. Right. Um, so we just had this uh, quote from William Montgomery Watt about Aristotle. Mm. But we, when we think about it, that in the Middle Ages, what the relationship did the Europeans have with uh, classical Rome and Greece. Mm. So there was actually no relationship because the the Romans were not Christian. The Greeks were also not Christian. Mm-hmm. Uh, often their philosophy was deemed heretical. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, and the actually the, the uh, Christian culture of the Middle Ages was not interested in in scholarship. So maybe I'm not doing justice to Christianity fully, uh, you know, to all the Christian movements that have, have existed. But I think that Christianity as, as a, in general has not been interested in um, education and learning mm-hmm. as much because it just had to, you just had to believe in Christ to have salvation. Yeah. You just had to go through this phase on earth by uh, by holding on to your faith and attain salvation. Mm-hmm. So this may be a stereotype, but I think it's good to make this comment about Christianity. And otherwise, we have no 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 not many other uh, explanations for the fact that the dark ages were so dark. Yeah, and so if, Christian. If, if Christianity, <laughs> yeah. yeah, so dark and so Christian uh, so simultaneously. Yeah. So if Christians in Europe really um, were motivated to to study and and develop themselves, then this wouldn't happen. Mm. Um, and actually, as religion broke down in the society, they opened up to learning. Well, yeah, yeah. Well, maybe not quite. Not exactly. So this the same is time. maybe in the last few centuries is the case. But the so the humanists, the European humanists, they were quite uh, energetic about their Christianity. Mm. But they also wanted to have this culture of learning as well. Yeah. But I just want to look at the role of the classics of classical Rome and Greece in our civilization. Uh, how um, how uh, logical is it? Uh, it isn't very logical because uh, there was no relationship in the Dark Ages, mm. and it was only when the Christians saw that the Muslims included the classical Greek authors in their humanist culture, and they did such great things with it, mm. with these authors, um, that the Christians thought, hey, this is, uh, this looks great. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I've been imagining how the Christians would have uh, felt the, that there was a connection and maybe it was just geographical that Italy used to be the Roman Empire mm. or that... Um, like the gospels had been written in Greek at at one time. Mm. So maybe these were reasons that 
the Christians started thinking like these are these, these are, are ours. These are ours, and we haven't done anything yeah. with it. So these are they don't belong to these Muslims. The Muslims are doing great things with them. Yeah, but actually they are ours. Yeah, and so this is a really important move in the narrative of our civilization, uh, where they made this decision, and in this. Uh, Dynamic, they also made the decision to choose classical Latin as a competitor for uh, the classical Arabic. Yeah. And of Aristotle as a central in philosophy. Mm. Uh, whereas probably the the Muslim authors were much more uh, um, developed than Aristotle. Yeah. But still the the Europeans, uh, they, they made this decision that no, it's, it has to be Aristotle and it has to be the Greeks. And even Ibn Rushd, who was celebrated so much in the European world because he was uh, such a purist of Aristotelianism, whereas in the Muslim world, he didn't actually have that much of an impact at all. Oh, really? No, he didn't didn't have much of an impact, no. uh, especially compared to what he had in the West. And, the, and, and also, I want to, you know, just comment on the fact that, you know, I think what you said is obviously very, very true because the um, previous... You know, you, you said maybe it's an overgeneralization, but I think it's a very fair one because when you look at kind of Christian scholarship pre their exposure to Islam, it's very minimal. Yeah. It's very minimal. Yeah, it's it's there. There are some efforts, but it's not very uh, fast and it's not very systematic. Concerted. Yeah, yeah, systematic. But, but, uh, yeah. And but, also, it's I think it's because they also have a, a very isolated priesthood. The idea of seeking knowledge wasn't something which was more generalized. They have an isolated priesthood. Mm. They are the scholars. Everyone comes and confesses their sins to them. And how much do you really need to know? You really, like you said, you just need to know that the Bible is true and to believe. Mm-hmm. Whereas the Quranic script and Islam tells you, you have to find things out. You have to learn. Yeah. And if you understand nature better and you understand the nature of the heavens and the earth and man himself, then you'll understand better the nature of the creator. So there's this natural impetus within Islam and within the Quran, which is not there within Christianity. And the historical evidence of this is exactly what you've pointed out, which is the Christians only seek this after they have centuries of contact with the Muslims. And I'll just point you to the to the point us all to the to the last part of that quote from William Montgomery Watt, mm-hmm. where it says the purely negative activity of turning from Islam, especially when so much was being learned from Arab science and philosophy would have been difficult, if not impossible, without a positive compliment. The positive compliment was the appeal to Europe's classical Greek and Roman past. And I remember Ben Shapiro, I think we didn't show this part of it. He later, I know it's in a different video where he says, yeah, the Muslims are good. They translated the books of the, uh, of, in their golden age, they translated the books of the Greeks as if they didn't do anything past that. And as if yeah. they were just carrying water for the white man to pick it up again. Later. I mean, it's, it's yeah. ex- so this is extremely unfair. This is mm. really extremely unfair. Mm. And uh, so, and and uh, so, because it was the whole motivation to educate yourself, and the whole motivation to um, to have a linguistic culture, uh, which came from Islam. Mm. So it's completely unfair to say that the Muslims translated some books and they, they handed them to the enlightened people yeah. of the West. <laughs> and what I find extraordinary about that is because they highlight Greek and Roman, but the reality is, as you yourself just pointed out. They took from the Indians, they took from the Greek and Romans, they took from the Persian, very rich Persian culture, huge Persian civilization that ended with the Muslims taking over. Mm. They took from the Egyptians, right? So the Muslims didn't just take from the Greeks and the Romans, and they didn't just take, they developed, and there's very good evidence, you know, you, you know about it well in terms of the development of the- Shukuk uh, movement. Yeah, the Shukuk movement. And, but also, there's also very good evidence on the side of astronomy in particular, that the Muslims surpassed 
the earliest uh, the earlier scholars within 50 to 100 years mm-hmm. actually by the by the middle of the ninth century yeah. they were already past them and they had already developed a, a systematic way in a, or they had already developed a way of critiquing yeah. past scholarship actually mm. yeah um sorry and, and, and i'm not i'm going to uh, uh, read something that will show people how obvious it was that they surpassed them mm. because look at this culture that uh, developed look at this culture that developed uh, in uh, like um, a few hundred years after the coming of the holy prophet sallallahu just look at this example this is uh, one of the many scholars uh, mentioned in the book of george mcdesi that i'm um, referring to in my article his name is al kali he was born in the region of diyar bakr in anatolia in 893 he went to study adab so humanism in iraq at first in Mosul in 915 and two years later in Baghdad. Uh, he studied under the great scholars of his day. Over two decades later, when he had finished his studies, he left Baghdad for Cordova. So he traveled all the way from Iraq to Spain. Well, wow. uh, Arriving in 942 and there he settled until his death in 967. And it was in Cordova that he summarized all the knowledge that he had collected in his life. So he, he he wrote this book called The Dictations. And uh, in the introduction of this book, he says that seeing that knowledge is the most precious merchandise, I knew for certain that setting out in search of it would be the best kind of commerce. I therefore left my homeland to hear knowledge transmitted and I clung to the scholars in order to understand it. Then I buzz- busied myself in collecting it and worked my intelligence in memorizing it until I had gathered the most significant part of it, preserving its refinements, transmitting its splendors, knowing its subtleties, understanding its anomalies, passing on its rarities, perceiving its obscurities, and learning its lucidities. I then dictated this book from memory on Thursdays in in Cordoba, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> in Cordoba, in the mosque of the blessed shining city, Azahara. So on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, I was doing other scholarship activities. <laughs> on Thursday, I was like dictating from memory everything I've ever learned. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but there's so much in this, in this quote, right? Yeah. Because uh, you also see how much he loves knowledge and how much he has been uh, working with it mm. that he talks in, in so many ways about knowledge that mm. it's splendors, it's refinements, it's subtleties, it's anomalies. So this is somebody who really was working with knowledge all his life. Yeah. And cherished but, it. Yeah. And this is just one example. So there were, I think thousands of people that lived like this. Yeah. Mm. Uh, and now Israel so, is busy bombing all of these books, these ancient manuscripts to bits, basically. Uh, right. And and so, it's, sorry, no, I was going to transition into another point. So did you want to complete this point? Yeah, I think it's important to, uh, that I want, I really wanted to read this because it's such a beautiful uh, example. But what we were going to look at was that why the Europeans had to uh, draw these uh, classical authors into it, the the Greeks and the Romans, and why did did everything have to become uh, Greek and and Rome? Mm -hmm. Uh, Like, now, today, even if we're going to some kind of conference about any subject, we always have this, we always have this uh, people saying that 
Socrates already said this. Mm. Aristotle already said this. Mm. It always has to be some kind of reference to the classics. Mm. So this is the narrative that was created. Mm. And this narrative could only be created by ethnically cleansing mm. the Muslims out of the story. Yeah. And, uh, and this is the painful part of it. And this is why Ben Shapiro can say something like this, that, that Western civilization is based on Judeo-Christian values and Greek rationality. Mm. Because in the whole narrative, the whole Muslim contribution, which was um, essential, has been cleansed out. Yeah. I wanted to, to, to read something from a, a doctor who was busy with this campaign. So this campaign uh, of cleansing the academic world from, from Arabian influences. Yeah. yeah. The biggest push in the ethnic cleansing of our uh, narrative of our civilization is in the early 16th century. And uh, here is a, a quote from a doctor called Fuchs, uh, who, who, um, who wrote a book in 1555 called The Institutions of Medicine. And he says, it is best to reject the Arabs completely and just to abandon them, the barbarians of a bygone age. And as if one drinks water from the purest spring to start studying the writings of the Greek physicians who have passed on the art of medicine in its most pure and incontaminated form and by the most reliable of methods, all that is required for the medical practice. As everything in the teachings of the Arabs is dirty, barbaric, contaminated, complicated and littered with the worst errors, likewise all that is Greek is clean, clear, brilliant, lucid, transparent and un uncontaminated. The Arabs have nothing which they did not borrow from the Greeks, except for the mistakes which only they make. Mm. So it is, it is very difficult to, to create a more racist uh, <laughs> slur. Or I think Netanyahu is doing, doing his best, actually. Well, I mean, but Ben Shapiro said something not too dissimilar. No, he didn't. I mean, let me, let me bring it up, actually. He said something very similar. He said, uh, Israelis like to build, Arabs <coughs> like to bomb crap and live in open sewage. This is not a difficult issue. And that was in relation to settlements. So did he say this when he was like 14? No, he said this in 2010. So, I mean, I think he's in his 40s now, probably. So he's maybe yeah. in the 30s, perhaps. Yeah, so he's an adult. Um, and and it's, it's emblematic, again, of how this attitude has continued. But what strikes me is actually that the West is not, try as they have... Um, they have not been able to completely expunge, obviously, their culture, even of the appearance of Arab things. So, for instance, you know, even the idea of a, of a university was something which, you know, famously Fatima al-Fitri in the, in the ninth century founded the first sort of school of learning in that university sense. And it is said it's difficult to verify this, but it makes sense. And it has been it has been said that, you know, when we graduate, mm. we get into gowns and we have the hats mm -hmm. and it looks very much like Arab dress, yes. you know, with the thobs and all this. Yeah. So even then, you know, in the, at the peak of every individual scholarship, you celebrate Arab culture. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Completely true. Completely true. And we should celebrate that this is still happening. Definitely. Mm. So that's a beautiful example, and and it is it is an example of how we have lost also 
part of our own culture by misunderstanding this mm. because we don't really understand why they're wearing that, mm. right? Yeah. We don't understand why this hat is like this. Mm. So that's what's also what I would like to argue uh, in understanding this and understanding the complete narrative of our civilization. Yeah. That if we leave out Islam and if we ethnically cleanse Islam from the picture, and then we don't also understand part of our own civilization. Mm-hmm. Right. And you cannot say like Ben Shapiro says that it is based on Judeo-Christian and and, Re- and Greek rationality. Yeah. Because it's just not true. Right. So you're saying actually the picture of the West itself is deficient, that the West cannot understand itself without accepting that Islam is part of the West. Yeah. And it be- has been part of the Western story. Mm. I mean, as a, as a, we, we're all, we're all Western in a sense here. Yeah. You're ethnically Western. How does that kind of affect you? And, and how did that affect you and, and your story kind of growing up and learning these things? Yeah. So, um, you know, as I was, um, so much impressed with Islam and became Muslim, mm-hmm. then of course, as a European, I wanted to know the relationships that were there. And, uh, and so I, I, I started looking for these things and, and came across things like this. Mm. Um, and one interesting example that what we're talking about now, I came across maybe 20 years ago. Right. And, uh, I have the books that I came across here in front of me on yeah. the table. Um, but, uh, I found them only in the, in the university library at the time. Yeah. But at the moment you can only buy them in antique bookshops. Really? Because, uh, you know, you, you just cannot buy them. And these are the books on the table here in front of us. So yeah. we have, w- w- which so books are We they? have here books uh, by Joel Kramer, published by, uh, Brill, uh, publisher in Leiden in Holland, uh, with the title Humanism in the Renaissance of Islam. And the other one is an amazing book by George McDesey, uh, which is called The Rise of Humanism in Classical Islam and the Christian West. Mm. And um, yeah, these are just uh, amazing uh, academic works, but uh, almost impossible to find. Yes. Right. And so, but for, for about your question about how it is for me, yeah, I think it is it is painful to to realize for me that uh, aspect of uh, cleansing Islam out of the narrative, mm. but it also makes me afraid because I was always raised as a Dutch person with the how wrong the ethnic cleansing was of the Jews in the World War Two. Mm. This was our moral compass that was given to us as children yeah. by our parents. But as I realized that the that that Islam is cleansed out of the narrative, how easy is it to cleanse also the people right. out of the country? And I think that what's happening in Gaza is also uh, enabled by 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 this narrative that we're talking about. Yeah, that the Muslims didn't contribute to anything. Yeah, and you can bomb them mm. to bits. Uh, because it doesn't matter. They never contributed a thing. And uh, we are superior and, and we are Judeo-Christian and all that. Mm. And they are just barbarians. So I, it makes me afraid to see this, to see this happening with the narrative of our culture. It also makes me sad to see that Muslims have to uh, live with being regarded as, uh, you know, 
sort of secondary citizens and people who who kind of come to consume a civilization mm. instead of having been contributing oh, to it. Mm. Right. So if if all the Muslims would like they're parasites and you know, t- just taking and those yeah. they didn't, they never gave anything exactly. So if all the young Muslims who are trying to integrate and trying to uh, move uh, on, uh, move forward in, in our society, if they would think of themselves as being part of a culture that contributed to the civilization, mm. it would be much different mm. a feeling for them uh, than it is now that they have to assimilate into yeah. Yeah. I, I, there's a there's a really nice part. I mean, there are sections of our society which are starting to realize that this is uh, wrong and and this isn't the right approach, and that actually Muslims have contributed a great deal. And one particular uh, book which is very famous in the medical world, especially in the United Kingdom, I don't know how it is. You're a doctor in in Holland. I don't know if it's there. It's called the Cheese and Onion. It's called the Oxford Handbook of Clinical Medicine. Mm-hmm. And if you open the interior cover of it, or at least on previous editions, I don't know if you noticed this. It has two pictures. It has two trees, one on one side and one on the yeah. other. And on one tree, there are the apples and the apples are named Vesalius, Hippocrates, Galen, and it's got all the European fruits. And then on the other side, you've got another tree and it's got Ibn Sina. It's got all of the Islamic or oh, Islamic scientists and Islamic uh, Arab well, personalities. I, didn't, I, didn't, I don't remember that at least. So, so yeah, it's in there. And it was in the very opening cover of the most prestigious English medical textbook mm-hmm. that yeah, has excellent. ever existed, very the Oxford nice. Handbook of Clinical Medicine. We call it the cheese and onion because its cover is yellow and green. Oh, I'd um, like to see that. Yeah. So, I mean, that that I always was quite, I really liked. And uh, it's a shame it's actually been removed from from subsequent editions. Has it? Yeah, on, my, on the latest edition, I think it has been removed. Don't quote me on that, but I'm pretty sure it has. Um, but when I when I was studying medicine at university, it was there, and I re- I really liked that, and I noticed it, and I valued it. Mm. Mm. Very nice, and and so there are even connections between the two two trees, as we are discussing now. Mm. Um, and but um, something I I'm th- I have to think of is that it is true that uh, sometimes people are are impressed and open to uh, the story of the contribution of Islam, and it is also a very exciting story. Um, and I wrote about it as well when I was studying uh, medicine in Holland. I wrote an article about the influence of uh, the uh, Arab doctor uh, Zakaria Razi, hmm. which who is called uh, Razes in uh, Europe, uh, on a doctor from Belgium uh, centuries later. And uh, so this this story is that this doctor in Belgium is very much at first in this ethnic cleansing attitude. So he studies in Paris and he says that all the Arab words has to go out of the books. <laughs> and then, uh, and then he moves to Switzerland and then he becomes a little bit more open and then he moves to Italy. And then he is actually prefers the Arab authors over the uh, Greek ones that were celebrated so much in, in Paris. Mm. So I, I wrote about this, uh, role of this Arab doctor in his life. And this was even published by Cambridge University Press. Right. So um, that's definitely a sign that people are sometimes open to it. Uh, and it is an exciting story. Maybe, so, maybe Western scholarship is in its Switzerland phase. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to move forward. So, yeah, I, well, I want to cover one particular last bit, if that's all right with yeah, you, yeah. is a humanism aspect. So you talk also in the article about how humanism has lost its soul um, because Al-Insaniya, Usul al-Insaniya, was one of the branches of Adab, of Islamic um, 
how can we translate that learning scholarship mm-hmm. was the study of the humanities of things that were relative to relevant to humans. And that included logic. It included the sciences, but it also included moral philosophy yeah. and how it's, it's now taken on a meaning of basically a secular religion. If you're a humanist, you're, you've got the humanistic outlook or religion without God. So it's trying to create a religion without God. Um, it's just atheism, right? It's basically, well, no, it's, it's, it's just attempting to replace yeah. the moral aspect of religious tradition mm-hmm. um, with an atheistic based framework of ethics. And a lot of our early material was on critiquing uh, yeah, humanism. Yeah, I mean, we went, we went full on and, against uh, humanism. And the videos. <laughs> we, went, we went full on against humanism. I don't know yeah, if you yeah, know yeah, or yeah. not. <laughs> no, so I, I, was, I was figuring that it might be difficult if I talk about humanism in a... <laughs> I, it was, in a, it was a struggle. Way. It was actually. I was like, humanism? <laughs> what? <laughs> encompassing a belief in the divine. I was like, I didn't get it, but I got it by the end. But, yeah. <laughs> um, but the, can you tell us a little bit about how humanism changed, um, in the West itself, um, between the early 20th century and, and now? Yeah. Or early 19th. And, yeah. and you were completely right in, in critiquing humanism, of course, because it is a humanism that is, uh, as it is defined now, mm. uh, as being a, a kind of a secular, uh, view on on humanity um but uh, so the humanism as it is defined now is a result uh of struggles of the western world with its uh, social political problems and especially with christianity um for example uh there was a, a movement in the 19th century called the ethical movement mm-hmm. uh who uh, tried to find an alternative for Christianity uh, because of its shortcomings. Mm. And, um, and so they were actually thinking about, you know, uh, they, at that time they were still saying that religions have had positive contributions to humanity, but Christianity is not working for us anymore. So what should we do? And this is extreme, again, extremely painful that they couldn't just look to Islam mm. Um, and this has probably has to do with the whole narrative that had been created for centuries where Islam has no role. Mm-hmm. But anyway, so uh, so the the Europeans from the 19th and 20th century, they had this big struggle with Christianity and uh, were then shocked by two world wars mm. and had to um, had to react to that with, uh, trying to get their mi- to keep their mind together, and this was just these humanist manifestos uh, who were written, which were written. Yeah. Um, so and they, was, and they was... used they used the the term humanism. Okay. Uh, but I think it is completely out of context because they present themselves as, as being the the legitimate heir to the humanist tradition. Mm. But in fact, it is just, uh, they're just um, sociopolitical movements. Right. And they're not scholarly movements, for example. Uh, so that's one thing. But there are def- sociopolitical movements who call themselves humanists mm. and who uh, then um, use this name to serve atheism. Yeah. Because Christianity didn't work for them anymore. Mm. Um, but the true humanism was extremely religious. And as we have said, um, the values of humanism being purity in language, scholarship in language, it came from 
values having to do with uh, with the Quran mm. and uh, the ideal of education as someone that uh, helps you um, attain the purpose of your creation by God and and helps you in your relationship to God. These are values from Islam. Yeah, and um, and so it's extremely important to remember this that the humanist tradition in in the Islamic world, but also in even also in the European humanists of the uh, like 14th to 16th centuries, maybe up until the 19th centuries. Yeah, they were religious. Yeah, so they they were studying the Bible. Uh, they were really trying to um, to to seek knowledge in in every field, and were very very religious. Mm. So it is very uh, unfair that the the humanists movements of today uh, claim this name for atheism, mm. uh, whereas the tradition for many centuries has has been a very religious one. So ironically. <laughs> In an attempt to create a non-religious, non-divine basis for a religion or an atheistic religion, they've had to hearken back to a name which was created yeah. by a religion, effectively, and a set of values which so, emanated from the holy text of the Quran. And yeah. what I particularly love, and I really just kind of emphasize, emphasize and bring it back, is the fact that, in a way, it was a it was actually a consequence obviously of what the Islamic teachings were about reason, about study of nature, etc. But from my reading of your article, it was more than that. It was actually also a function of the spread of Islam so rapidly. So we know that two things happened early in the history of Islam is that when Islam spread very rapidly and large numbers of non-Arabs came into Islam, we have the companion Hulayfa, may Allah be pleased with him, he went to the Caliph Uthman, and may Allah be pleased with them, and said there are lots of non-Arabs, non-Arabs, Persians, uh, people in Europe, people in Egypt, people in, in other countries um, who speak, you know, very, sometimes they speak very difficult dialects of Arabic or they don't understand the standard Qureshi Arabic, um, but they are accepting Islam and they are memorizing these passages and they are replacing their common words in their dialects into the, into the text. Right, and so uh, Uthman, may Allah be pleased with him, came worried about this, and then he created the standardized Islamic Arabic Qurayshi text, which the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alaihi wasallam, peace be on him, gave to the world, mm. um, and that became the standardized Islamic text throughout the world. Mm -hmm. And what you're kind of saying is that in the Caliph Ali's time, the next Caliph, what happened was they actually developed a system of grammar from the Quran, uh, because taught to a certain extent, I imagine. Possibly also, it was a continuation of that. You had so many non-Arabs entering Islam, they also had to learn the language, mm. right? So as to preserve, preserve it. Because almost immediately, Arabs were the minority in all of the major nations that they had conquered, mm. right? So you look at the number of Arabs in Egypt, you know, it didn't break 10%, the number of Muslims in, in Egypt, it didn't break 10% for several hundred years, mm -hmm. right? Same in Spain. Same in Spain. So, you know, this also goes along against the narrative that Islam was a, a religion of conquest because it took hundreds of years, for example, for Egypt to become a Muslim-majority nation. Mm -hmm. um, but from what my reading of your excellent scholarly Adab, Adabi article, um, it's that this was also a function of the spread of Islam and the desire to understand the Quran in its original language. 
which shows just another facet that we've come across mm. of the enormous blessing of the Quran upon humanity. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, it is. And the Arabic language as well. And uh, it's nice to point out that Osman made a very humanistic effort to uh, safeguard the Quran against uh, other influences that mm. he wanted to keep it pure. Mm. Yes. Uh, but in a way we can, you know, I think it's it's maybe uh, more accurate to say it was a, a more Muslim effort, if you will, because actually the good aspects of humanism was just practicing Islam yes. and outflow and is the outflow of Islam itself. Mm-hmm. Um, and when humanism, humanism is almost like a mirror mm. in a civilization, which is, uh, based upon divine precepts, which is based upon, uh, real rationality, that there is real objective truth and that we should study nature and understand things more deeply. What we call humanism or scholarship, you know, flourishes in that way. When you get to a highly atheistic society, then your humanism or your scholarship only reflects the subjective nature of truth as they see it, where things are, you know, might is right and where things are true if enough people believe it, mm. which is what many Western people, including Ben Shapiro, yeah. actually, and Jordan Peterson, who, you know, famously at the outbreak of this war said, give them hell yeah. um, to the Israelis about the Palestinians. This is what they keep harping on about, which is that we need to get back to the Judeo-Christian roots um, of our civilization. But what you've put forward, not just in this video, actually, but also in your previous video where you talked about the political... Which we can free, link as well. And the free speech aspects. Um, actually, the so many of these good aspects were found in Islam and were taken from Islam. So to call it Judeo-Christian becomes a little bit misleading, especially, you know, and this is maybe the subject of a different video, a lot of the progress in science was made as a... Uh, in, in breaking from Christianity and breaking from the Bible and many of the irrational dogmas there, which you talk about in this article as well. So they're looking for religious, their religious roots, but actually their re- the religion in which they were rooted was Islam. Yeah. <laughs> and on that, absolutely, pretty, absolutely. pretty awkward. And, you know, <laughs> and, and I wanted to make one more point. Yes, uh, yes. That, that the humanist movement at this moment is also struggling to you know, have, have any bearing on society, right? Yes, yes. true. Because they, they have just, they have not a coherent system of, of thoughts. They have no um, moral bearing on what is happening in the world, really. Yeah. Mm. And so I think uh, that uh, the humanist uh, community is also looking very much for its soul. Mm. And uh, so what I want to propose is that actually the soul that was, that they were looking for in the 19th century when they said we need another religion, that that was the moment actually when the promised Messiah came, the Messiah of Islam. Mm. Founder of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, Hazrat Mirza Ghulam Ahmad, peace be on him. Exactly. And and he brought again to life the values of Islam that had once also um, pushed the, uh, the European civilization forward. And uh, so the Promised Messiah uh, um, re uh, enlive, um, made this made these values alive again. Mm. And he came also exactly at the right moment when they were looking for mm. this new religion. Yeah. But unfortunately, because of this false narrative of Islam being just something that never contributed anything and it's just barbaric, maybe they couldn't see it. 
but it was the soul that the humanist movement actually was looking for and should now uh, look at mm. to to find new life mm. in its values mm. um, because the jaws of neoliberalism will otherwise uh, chew them all these values to bits mm. because you, what is left if 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 humanity is just a biological creature uh, in the whole chain of uh, survival of the of the fittest, uh, you know, education is then some just something political or just something of having to do with production. Mm. But if you say that that education is something that will uh, attain your purpose in life uh, that God has given you. Mm. then this is a much more powerful motivation Absolutely. to uh, keep celebrating these values of, of education and of learning and scholarship mm. and uh, moral philosophy, you know? Well, well, what we get is the world we have today, which is where we're seeing these kind of harrowing images of the so-called enlightened civilizations um, blowing, you know, others to bits, those who are implicitly considered as barbarians. Mm. Uh, and that's the kind of, that's the morality that comes out of all this very, very sadly. Mm. Um, and, you know, what, what, we're, what we're seeing here is that a, a true return to God, uh, both intellectually and spiritually, would actually allow us all to live in, in peace. Um, so may, may God enable us to have that. I'll just mention at the end here that, you know, a, a lot of what you've been saying, what we've all been discussing, you know, at the foundation for many of us intellectually was the fourth caliph's work in revelation, rationality, knowledge, and truth, where he traces the, uh, the origins of the Renaissance back to its exposure to Islam. And the fifth caliph of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community a few years ago in his famous uh, Ahmadiyya Muslim Research Association conference um, stood before so many of the distinguished scientists of our community and said, you need to now make up for the deficiencies of the West in its research and in its searching for truth and go forward and and become researchers. So that's something which Ahmadiyya Muslims try and do, and, and you've done it wonderfully. So we thank you for your contributions here, and we hope people will read this article and benefit from it. And uh, to those at home, we always you know, uh, thank you for your views and God willing that, uh, you know, there'll be a ceasefire in Palestine and that we'll have peace there and a lasting peace. Justice. Yeah. I mean, thank you so much for having me. Thank you.